When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. My cat Rachel is the silliest cat I know. One time, she played inside a paper bag for three hours. What a mystery. But I'm glad her health isn't. Thanks to the color-changing litter from Fresh Step Crystal's health monitoring litter. This premium color-changing litter has pH-activated crystals that can help me detect potential illness early. That makes it easy for me to stay on top of her health and well-being. I may not understand all of Rachel's silly quirks, but I can keep up with the important things. Find Fresh Step Crystal's health monitoring litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and I'm here today with Steve Kleinedler, author of Is English Changing? An Introductory Linguistics Textbook. For many years, Steve was the executive editor in the reference group at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, where he was responsible for the American Heritage Dictionary, as well as managing the panel of usage experts, the dictionary polled, and the kinds of topics we talk about all the time on the podcast, like, uh, is it okay to use anxious to mean eager? and whether there's something wrong with that 10 items or less sign at the grocery store. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you, Mignon. It's really a pleasure to be speaking with you. Yeah, well, I just find the work you have done fascinating, and I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, let's just start with the usage panel, sure. the, um, the entries in the American Heritage Dictionary that show how usage experts, what, what they think about common usage problems um, you were in charge of that. And I just, I would love to hear at first um, how, it, how it all got started. Great. Well, thank you. Yeah. The usage panel has been an integral part of the American Heritage Dictionary from its conception up to the end of the publication of the dictionary in 2018. Um, in the 1960s, when the first edition was still being prepared, uh, it was a, an interesting time in the American publishing world because dictionaries were a very easy way for publishers to make money. Um, so a lot of publishing companies uh, would produce their own dictionary. Um, and so one of the more well-known ones, of course, was Merriam-Webster, and their third edition came out in 1961. And at the time it came out, it was seen to be uh, unusually permissive. Uh, it really wasn't, but um, there were pundits who really ran with that idea. Um, and your listenership might be interested in a book by David Skinner called The Story of Ain't, which um, describes that whole era and that and, and, and everything about the publication of Webster's Third in great depth. Right, because the dictionary included ain't in a way yes. that pe people didn't like. Yeah. Yep. And that was a huge thing. Um, and there was a publisher who saw a way to, um, counteract that and, uh, proposed a dictionary that would be more prescriptive than descriptive. I'm sure that your viewers are familiar with the whole prescriptive, descriptive, uh, debate. The truth of the matter is most dictionaries are actually very descriptive, and the American Heritage Dictionary is as well, even though it had a reputation of being prescriptive that came out from this period in the 60s, because it was originally conceived 
as an antidote, if you will, to uh, Merriam-Webster's permissiveness. Um, and as part of that, uh, the, the the publishing plan was the we're going to have this usage panel of uh, a couple hundred linguists and people who used English in their everyday life, you know, poets, writers, journalists, that kind of thing. And the intent was that these usage notes would help the dictionary decry all the permissive things that Merriam-Webster had put out. However, as it turns out, um, especially the linguists who are on the panel, not to mention the actual lexicographers themselves who were um, brought on staff to rate and compile the dictionary throughout the 60s, um, they, being you know, principal lexicographers, they themselves were very uh, descriptive. And the, how the project ended up was very different uh, than the way it was initially conceived by the initial publisher. Um, there was a six year, seven year period where, um, the usage panelists were being pulled three or four times a year, 20 or 30 questions at a time, starting with the letter A somewhere around 1963 and 1964, leading up till about a year before publication in 1969. And those several hundred usage notes became the initial, um, block of, uh, notes that appeared in the dictionary. And, um, the, it was very successful, and uh, they, they, they got, the dictionary got a lot of uh, publicity mileage out of that and continued to do so th throughout the next five editions. One thing that people often ask is, you know, who is this panel and what makes them qualified to determine, you know, what's right and what's wrong? I mean, they're, they're experts, they're experts in writing, but still, like, how, how were these particular experts chosen? I can't speak to the 60s because I wasn't there, uh, but... At that time, of course, the publishing world was very based in New York. So you see a lot of uh, New York literary figures. Um, and I would imagine that the linguists were somehow uh, associated with uh, people who are working on the dictionary. Um, by the 90s, the aughts, it, it, we, the, the editorial staff, uh, made a point of like getting much more regional diversity so that you had people from all parts of the country, not just um, the coasts. Uh, and uh, looking for different type of linguistic specialists, uh, reaching out, branching out to different types of poetry, different mechanisms of expressing the written word, including uh, people who wrote graphic novels uh, like Alison Bechdel, as opposed to just people who are doing strict prose. Um, visual artists who used words in their medium, Pulitzer Prize winners, um, that sort of thing to really expand the pool. Nice. Nice. Who were some other people that were on the panel that uh, the listeners might recognize? Oh, there were plenty. Um, and I'm going to grab the book myself. So oh, I can, okay. and your, your listeners, even though the dictionary ceased publication in 2018, the website still works. So, uh, listeners can go there and check it out. And, the, and then the usage panel list is included there too. And that website is ahdictionary.com. Um, yeah, I still go there probably at least once a week. <laughs> yes, yeah, so do I. Uh, just looking at the, um, uh, at just looking at the list, uh, down here. Uh, so there were close to 200, uh, linguists and writers, um, writers ranging from, um, Pulitzer Prize winners like Susan Laurie Parks, uh, we have uh, Robert Reich, who was once the U.S. Uh, Secretary of Labor. 
Um, people like uh, David Skinner, the author I mentioned of the story of eight linguistic professors like uh, Deborah Tannen and other writers like um, Amy Tan and uh, Faye Weldon. There's a full list in the book or on the website. It's a it's a really nice uh, variety of people and opinions who um, have you know the authority to speak on a, a language. Nice. And um, Andy Hollenbeck asked me if um, if there were any sticklers who always you know chose the most prescriptive way or who always voted against changes or did anyone you know quit in protest over the results? Like, were there, were there any people who were like that? During my tenure, no, um, I was there for 22 years, executive editor as seven years, um, but worked on the, with the panel results for all 22 years. Um, people were very generally good natured about it. Uh, they, in fact, a lot of them, uh, found it to be fun. Like sometime in, in the beginning when we were still using paper ballots, some people would always return it right away. And then you'd get the next clump, you know, right before the deadline, uh, Starting in the mid-aughts, we went to an electronic format, which uh, was a lot easier to collate the information and everything. Um, people usually filled it out pretty enthusiastically. And yes, some people were stricter and others were less so. But sometimes you'll find quotations from certain people anonymized uh, saying why they may or may not have uh, liked certain things. Also, on the, on the, on the website, ahdictionary.com at the bottom, you'll find uh, a link to the dictionary's Tumblr site that was active about eight to 10 years ago. Um, within that, there are a lot of essays that, um, um, that I and some of the other editors wrote. And there were a few, um, that, uh, talked about the panelists. Uh, there was one of the last panelists that was still around from the very beginning. Um, I'm going to get his name right. I think it was Howard. Um, I'm sorry. It was not Howard. It was William, uh, William Zinser, who was ah. one of the original panelists. Uh, he, one of his relatives wrote in with some of his papers. Uh, and there's a really nice article about, um, some of his viewpoints in the sixties versus, uh, later on. Um, there aren't, you know, there's only a couple dozen, uh, Tumblr entries, but I think, uh, some of your, uh, diehard fans would really enjoy going through that and seeing, you know, some of the, 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 the um, essays we have about it. I'll put it in the show notes so people can find it. Um, another question um, someone had is, did the editors ever overrule the panel? The short answer is no, but it also depends on how you define overrule. Usually we use all the material except when we realized when getting the results back that there was uh, a problem with the way that we worded the question where there's this ambiguity. And, you know, if it was like a yes, no question, you know, would you use this in your edited prose? Um, it was hard to determine whether or not they were going after the thing we were testing or if there was a different problem with the uh, sentence that we hadn't realized. In those cases, we would ask um, a an analogous question the following year, you know, fixing it so there would be no ambiguity. Uh, aside from that, uh, because we were we were using uh, often percentages or a, a, a yes no thing, we could almost always find a way to include the information we needed in the definition. Uh, and if there was some outcry against it, that would be covered in the note. We, as the editorial staff, didn't really have a need to say, "Well, the the, the, the use panel felt this," but we're like, "Do what you want." You know, we could again. <laughs> We could let the note speak for itself, right? Um, and as a general rule, the panel was um, 
pretty perceptive of being able to distinguish, you know, if you say this thing, people will misconstrue you. It's wrong because if you use this, people won't know what you're saying. Uh, and on the other end, uh, yeah, go ahead. The ship has sailed. And then, of course, everything in between. Right. Right. Well, that reminds me of one question. So I've been doing usage polls on Facebook for a month or so now. And one problem I've really struggled with is how to define the circumstances under which people think a usage is acceptable. Um, You you know, and and like, how did you phrase it? How how did the dictionary define what acceptable usage you were trying to pull the panel about? Right. Um, in the questionnaire that we sent to the usage panel, uh, unless there were specific things to a particular question that we were going for, the general rule was, would you use this word or phrase in edited prose? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was less about, you know, are you going to use this in casual speech with your friend, you know, in front of the grocery store versus you are, you know, working at a newspaper. Is this usage going to make the cut if one of your writer uses it in an article. Um, the, uh, for your listenership who has a print copy of the American Heritage Dictionary, if you go to the uh, front matter of the dictionary, there are some essays and instructive matter uh, that talk about um, the, 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 the methodology, as it were, uh, that is sometimes of interest. As a general rule, though, what we were looking for is whether or not it would be used in what we called edited prose. Occasionally, we would ask questions that were a little more fine-grained. It's like, you know, would you use this in casual speech? Would you use this in formal speech? But generally, we were going for um, edited prose. That's great. And you may have just answered this question, but um, Aaron Howard asked, what do you think is the most underused portion of the dictionary? Is it the front matter? Definitely the front matter. And it's... uh, it's an important part. You need it there. And people do refer to it, uh, but not as often as you like. And certainly in this day and age of digital dictionaries, chances of front matter getting used are very slim. But the, I mean, the fifth edition, the front matter goes, uh, I'm going to check right here, something like 28 pages. There's a lot of information there about how to use the dictionary. And lexicographers are aware of the fact that not everyone is using it. So we keep that in mind uh, when writing definitions or knowing that like, okay, if, 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 if you run into a label in a dictionary, the difference between obsolete and archaic, for example, um, rather than trying to guess what we might mean, those labels are explained in the front of a dictionary. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, a lot of time is actually spent on, uh, creating it. And we know it's for a very small percentage of the people who uh, actually avail themselves to it. Uh, And what is the difference between obsolete and archaic? That's a very good question. Uh, In the American Heritage Dictionary, in the fifth edition, archaic is applied to words and senses that have largely fallen out of use since around 1950 or associated with an earlier area and have seen some use in text printed after 1755, 755 being the year that uh, Samuel Johnson's uh, Dictionary of the English Language was published. Obsolete means you can find it in literary texts, but it really has fell out of use before 1755. Ah, so it's really like a cutoff of a date. That's interesting. Yes. 
When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules? only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally first with words, then with phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. So, you know, I think one thing I, I love about the usage notes, and I, I feel like maybe I ascribe too much importance to it, is the, the numerical value. You know, 67% of the usage panel thought this one year, and then 47% thought that, you know, 20 years later. And, uh, you know, do, do you feel like the quantifications are, are valid? I mean, obviously they're valid, but how much should I be reading into those quantifications? That's also a good question. Uh, the answer in, in terms of a question that's only been asked once, uh, I think it's interesting if, you know, if, if something's 50 50 or like all or nothing. Um, you know, the difference between an 86% approval and a 74% approval, not statistically valid. Something that's really like close on the edge versus unanimous. That's an interesting thing. Where I find it really interesting to look at the percentages is looking at words that we pulled over several decades. So if a word was pulled in the 60s and again in the 80s and again in the aughts, uh, seeing the shift uh, in the acceptability, keeping in mind that it's not the exact same people who are being asked each time because, you know, the, 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 the people who are on the panel in the 60s, by the time the aughts came around, many of them had retired or passed away, what have you. So the panel's always reconstituting. But as a, as a, as a general number, it's an interesting thing to track. Um, one note I find fascinating because I never knew it was a problem is the verb contact, which in the 1960s was 
considered an abomination by many. Like, you just to say, like, contact me later or? Or, you know, the, one of the directives was, um, you know, instead of using contact as a verb, which is an abomination, you should use telegram or send a letter or call by telephone or, you know, use the verb of the method that you are making for the contact. Contact was huh. seen as a noun. And so it's, um, it, um, in 1969, only 34% of the panel accepted the use of contact as a verb. By 1988, it was up to 65%. And in 2004, 94% approved of it. So yeah, I think, I've never heard of that objection. Right. Neither had I. I. I really had not. It was a real surprise to me when I started, uh, you know, working there in 1997 and came across this note. But uh, I think the percentages really paint an interesting story when you can track something over 40 or 50 years and see how it's changed. Yeah. When when people ask me about prescriptivism versus descriptivism and, you know, I've become less stringent over the years and, you know, how or why. And my answer is always when you find out what people objected to 50 or 100 years ago and and how ridiculous a lot of it sounds now, you realize a lot of the things that you know, people are getting upset about today are going to seem just as ridiculous 50 or 100 years from now. Just, it, it, yeah, it just, it, it's really hard to to get so worked up about things when you look at what people were worked up about a while it's ago. It's funny. <laughs> and, and, and by the uh, same token, there are, there are few lexical items that are so entrenched as quote unquote wrong, they will probably never change. Um, I don't know if you've talked to our colleague, Corey Stamper, uh, on your podcast. Yeah, she's been a guest. Yeah. So I'm sure the two of you spoke about the word irregardless at some point. I'm um, not sure if she did because she was on my words of the year show. So we were kind of limited in topic. Well, I'm guessing most of your listeners have read Corey's book word by word. And if yeah. they haven't, they should. I'll put the uh, link in the show notes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. And, uh, in it, um, she devotes a whole chapter to the word irregardless and how um, it just gets people worked up. It always has. And it doesn't seem like that prescription is going away anytime soon because it's one of those words people are very passionate about. That's a question. A couple of listeners had questions around the topic of, you know, what is the difference between a changing usage and something that's just wrong? You know, like, is a lot ever going to become one word because people spell it as one word. Like we consider, we definitely, we consider that an absolute error today. A lot is not one word. It's two right. words. A but lot is so many people do it. Like, is it going to become okay? It possibly might. I have a feeling it might not because I think a lot is one of those um, words that are so ingrained. you know, like my 10th grade teacher told me not to say this. If I say this, I'm a morally suspect person, <laughs> you know, the word tomorrow, which used to have like a hyphen in it, um, to tomorrow, you know, changes like that happen over the decades all the time. I, I think a lot is like one of those irregardless words where the, where people rail against it so hard that it, it might be a long time, uh, before it becomes accepted. Uh, who knows? I mean, it could be. It's just on enough people's radar that I think people, um, you know, there's enough purists who flip out every time they see it. I know there was a teacher in my high school um, who had no um, posters or anything in his classroom except um, one one 
cardboard thing that had the word A on it and another one that had lot on it. And A was <laughs> in one corner of the classroom and lot was in the other corner of the classroom. <laughs> so it's just more a matter of like how hard we've been taught that it's wrong. I think that has a lot to do with it. I really yeah. do. It actually reminds me of one, of one a fascinating fact that I love about English is um, so verbs are irregular and then they there were a lot more irregular verbs a long time ago and they become regular. But the more commonly we use a verb, the less likely it is to become regular because we're using it all the time. And so we just keep using it the way we're using it. But something like, like the verb to chide used to be to chode. But then, like, we almost never, you know, almost never use that verb. So, like, it just, suddenly everyone started saying chided. I guess that's what it is. Yeah. I haven't heard it. Uh, I think the past tense is chid or chided. The past participle is chidden. I remember in the 90s when I started working at the American Heritage Dictionary, there was a lot of discourse whether the past tense of dive was dove or dived. Um, and there's a couple other verbs that kind of were going through a transition at that time. Um, I can't remember one for the life of me. It was one of those ED versus the past tense having you in the middle. But those do not as often, but you do see change in those over time. Yeah, that was a question um, Aaron Howard had, too, is were there cases that caused a lot of consternation among the staff, you know, maybe depending on what the usage panel said or just that were tricky in general? I think the staff usually didn't evince much consternation. <laughs> um, I mean, when... A bad usage, I'm putting in quotes, comes to light. It's something that we document and talk about rather than being aghast that, oh, no, it's, you know, lexicographers are not defenders of the quote unquote purity of the language. We're there to document what people are using. Um, you know, and that's, I think, one of the benefits of electronic dictionaries is when you're not limited by space, you can put a lot more in. So that's one benefit of the move towards electronic lexicons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the other nice thing is that can be updated more than once every five years. <laughs> and you can add far more information, um, you know, more uh, supportive uh, quotations. Uh, one, I mean, one thing that the American Heritage Dictionary was especially known for was its etymology program, uh, where, you know, words... The histories of words we would take back to Proto-Indo-European, if they were Indo-European words, our, um, our final uh, etymologist, Patrick Taylor, was an amazing polyglot and did a lot of word histories going back to Proto-Semitic roots because um, he you know, knew uh, Arabic and Hebrew and Aramaic and could you know, reconstruct things backwards based on work he had done in the you know, work of other uh, linguists. Uh, and same thing with a lot of um, uh, uh, proto-Chinese uh, forms for a lot of East Asian uh, words that came into the dictionary. Um, I, it's, 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 it's fascinating. And in the teens, we were able to give more space to that, which was uh, a really amazing thing. Yeah. I've never really thought about it this way before, but it's kind of tragic because as the dictionaries being online gave more space to include more and more and better information, but it also is what has hobbled the business models of all the dictionaries and made it harder yeah, to put them it, out. It's, I mean, it's, I used to joke, I mean, even 20 years ago when people asked me what I did, I'd say I'm a buggy whip manufacturer. Uh, and, you know, sure enough, uh, it came to pass. And there are 
are fewer and fewer dictionaries every year. And it's on one hand, I mean, it is problematic, but on the other hand, the resources that are available to people now, um, and I'm thinking especially of compilers of information for indigenous languages uh, that previously there was no way to uh, easily uh, compile all this data, have all these tools at their hands. I'm at the last Dictionary Society of North America conference uh, this past spring. Um, about a third of the papers uh, were uh, on indigenous languages of North America, and many of them by speakers of indigenous languages. Um, and the scholarship there is fascinating. And I really do think that the future of lexicography is uh, headed in that direction. Oh, that's super interesting. So, yeah, I mean, as you said, the the usage panel isn't being surveyed anymore. The results right. are up there now as long as they stay there. But, you know, there isn't I'm not really aware of anything that that rivals it, except for, you know, Garner's modern English usage, of course. But, um, you know, Amir asked also, you know, do you think the usage panels are relevant today? Like, is it as relevant today as it was 20 or 40 years ago or because, you know, we have so many more dialects and and, you know, just different attitudes toward language? Right. Like, do we need them anymore? It's not that there are more dialects now. It's just that there is a greater recognition that dialects have a place in society. And there's not just one way to speak standard American English. Right. Um, I think uh, it. I, what is interesting to me and what has always been interesting to me is seeing this change in attitude over time. A lot of the, um, and when it comes to regionalisms, we really didn't pull our usage panel on regional English usage in that there's a, you know, a, a difference between, uh, you know, are you using contact as a verb and are, you know, and, and actual regional items that you would find in the Dictionary of American Regional English, which I'm sure uh, many of your listeners are yeah. um, familiar with so like you um, wouldn't ask about you know in ohio they say the car needs washed like that's not no, the kind of thing you'd ask about. we wouldn't because i mean we would have a note about that um but that would to talk about the the, the linguistic uh reality of that uh regionalism of uh eastern ohio and western pennsylvania where you know the car needs washed is a perfectly grammatical, syntactically well-formed sentence in that um, variety of English. So we would discuss that, but we wouldn't put it up to a vote because it's not really a vote-worthy thing. I mean, it's like we're not going to, the, the panel wasn't set up to, you know, judge that sort of regionalism. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's funny because I remember... <laughs> Uh, I, the part of the country I'm from, um, I grew up in Michigan. Uh, I have a past participle for the word buy is bought and you have store bought and bread, for example. Yeah. Um, I had no idea that that was considered, um, non-standard until, you know, I started up at the picture. I remember going through that, uh, section of the bees and seeing that. I'm like, what do you mean? This is, this is how people speak, but it turns out it's you know, just how people from my region speak. Um, so it's, 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 it's always an interesting thing to see what's, to tie it back to your original question. I think what's considered acceptable has broadened. I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, 
there are uh, the, the the goal of language is to communicate, and if your communication is going through to your audience, you have successfully communicated. Um, what that means to various periodicals, you know, you, you, what is your audience? You want to speak to your audience. You want to make sure you are clearly understood by your audience, which is why I think in-house style manuals, uh, as any editor will tell you, are really important, so that you make sure that you are speaking to your uh, audience. Yeah. If you were doing the the usage panel and the usage notes today, is there anything that you would do differently now? I think I, I think the focus would continue being on uh, because we would have had at this point fifty five years of data, really drilling down and and looking into the differences uh, between then and now. Um, and we in the teams, you know, we would do that with each. Bala ask a couple questions that harken back to previous one. And I think that's a, that would be a really interesting uh, topic to mind, just how attitudes have shifted over time when it comes to various locations. Yeah. What, what do you think the, the usage panel or the American Heritage Dictionary did especially well? Like, what are you most proud of from your work there? Um, I really, I, I mentioned this earlier. I, I think the etymologies are second to none. The staff, uh, who worked on it over the decades were really spent a lot of time drilling down and going way far back. So one thing some dictionaries do that we didn't, and it's totally fine, would you know, put the, the date of first attestation and they would always be looking for, um, quotations that go earlier back in time. And, and that's a great thing. And I have nothing against it. It's something that, you know, we didn't do, but what, we were able to do instead was go back um, linguistically as far as we could uh, to, um, if it was a Proto-European word, how far back into the into Proto-European could we take it? Um, I think our etymology uh, program is fantastic. Um, I have a lot of pride in you know just the definitional work that we did, and I think you know especially as we got into the teens, where a lot of dictionary companies were just pushing new, 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 new words, new words, new words, new words. Um, we were able to also supplement that with a great deal of revision to existing terminology. For better or for worse, there were never any ads on our website, so we didn't have to, um, even though, of course, we wanted clicks and wanted people to use the website, we weren't forced to draw people to the website for the sole purpose of monetizing it. And because of that, I feel like we didn't have to focus exclusively uh, on new words to the extent that some of our competitors did, which allowed us to uh, you know, spend more time, you know, working on uh, already established terminology and refining it and bringing it up to date. Yeah. Now today you'd be working on games, on word games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For the it's, it's 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 a changed. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a changed landscape. I've been out of the business uh, for five years now. I a lot of my colleagues, many of whom are close friends, are still in the business and. Um, their work is amazing and they're doing a lot of work with far smaller staffs than there used to be. And they're putting out really good work under, um, conditions that are really tough to do so. And I, you know, I think it's, I'm glad that they're able to do it and, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens 10, 20 years down the line. Yeah, for sure. So where can people find you online if they want to, you know, follow you and keep up with what you're doing? Well, um, on Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it now. Um, I'm at, uh, at S. Klein Edler, 
S-K-L-E-I-N-E-D-L-E-R. I'm not on it as much as I used to be, but I'm still there somewhat. And occasionally I will chip in in uh, linguistic and dictionary related uh, conversations. And um, until the site completely explodes, I'll probably maintain a presence there. Okay. All right. Well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes too, along with the link to David Skinner's book and the um, American Heritage Dictionary Tumblr account. Thank you so much, Steve, for being here today. This was really interesting. Thank you, Mignon. It was a pleasure to be here. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.